Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty along with my brother Darren. Live from the Morton studio today on the show, we're going to be talking a little about phosphorus. If you've got any questions for us, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. It's 844-442-4743. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. We're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a little bit. Before we do, I'll start you out with some information on phosphorus. So here's the most important thing you need to know about phosphorus. It doesn't move in soil for the most part. Okay. Now, when I say for the most part, uh, I'll just tell you if you had, let's say, really light soil and you had ridiculously extreme levels of phosphorus, is it possible for it to leach? Yes. But in a normal situation, so as long as you're under, I don't know, 300, 500 parts per million, you probably don't ever have to worry about this. Basically, phosphorus isn't going to end up in your tile lines. That's more than anything what I'm saying. Unless you have soil erosion and you have tile inlets. Or when it comes to water contamination, just understand that phosphorus is actually the number one water quality issue we have in fresh water in North America today. Now, a lot of people want to talk to you about nitrate when it comes to groundwater contamination, and that would be the number one factor for groundwater contamination because nitrate is leachable. But when it comes to in rivers, lakes, and streams, what we worry about is phosphorus getting in there because of soil erosion. It's not typically getting in there because of oh, it leached down in the ground, and now it's getting into tile lines. The reason why phosphorus is the big concern is because if there's more phosphorus, there's more algae. Phosphorus is typically the yield limit. Uh, I shouldn't say yield limiting, but it, phosphorus is typically the limiting factor for algae growth. So if you have more phosphorus, you'll have more algae growth. Now, Sometimes you will hear reports about, well, farmers are causing all these pollution issues. Uh, it was a few years ago when they started showing, oh, Lake Erie, and there are these great big algae blooms. It's got to be farmers. Well, please look on the map sometime, and you'll see it's right by the big towns. It's not because of the farmers. Now, I'm not saying farmers don't cause some problems, but that's where we talk all the time here on the show that, you know what, with phosphorus, you can solve this issue super fast environmentally. You just bury the phosphorus, get it down in the ground. But when you lay it on the surface of the soil and you don't till it in, then yes, you're subject to wind and water erosion. And when that soil moves, the phosphorus is going right with it. So that's the number one thing you got to know about phosphorus. Placement is everything for environmental contamination and for usage in the crop. Because think about it, if phosphorus doesn't move in the soil and you lay it on the soil surface and you don't till it in, well, what good is that phosphorus going to do your crop? None. It's going to do your crop no good. So that's not what you want. If you're going to spend money on fertilizer, it's got to do you some good, right? So put it down in the ground. You got to get it down in the ground somehow, some way. I also want you to think about Long-term, perennial crops. Think about alfalfa, for example. Okay, we know that over the life of the stand, 
in that alfalfa crop, it's going to use a fair amount of phosphorus, right? Okay, well, how are you going to solve that problem? You can't just go in and every year put more phosphorus on. That does you no good because most of that phosphorus is going to lay on the surface of the soil. It might get down, you know, a quarter inch where almost no roots are, and you just spent a whole bunch of money and you recovered 10 or 20% of that. That's a waste. Just put your phosphorus down for the four or five or six-year life of that stand and get it all down up front six or eight inches or 10 inches deep. Now it's safe. It's protected from any environmental risk and you know your crop is going to extract it. That's the way to do it. So you can utilize those dollars you've invested in the crop you're raising without creating a whole bunch of environmental issues. And that's the kind of stuff we talk about here on the show all the time. We want to make sure that you're getting more yield profitably, but at the same time, you're doing something good for the environment. Oh, and by the way, because there are a lot of people that will say, well, any fertilizer is bad for the environment. That is a, that's ridiculous. <laughs> let's put it that way. No way, because I want you to think about this. Okay, let's just talk about the global warming thing, and then we can talk about groundwater and all that stuff after that. But in terms of global warming, everybody wants to talk about greenhouse gases. Oh, we want fewer greenhouse gases. Yeah, you can solve that problem real easy. By the way, look at any map of greenhouse gases through the entire Midwestern United States and Southern Canada. At any point during the growing season, what are you going to find? You're going to find, it's amazing, our air is ridiculously clean. Why is that? Because we're raising crops and we want more crops because they'll pull more carbon dioxide out of the air and sequester it. That's what we want. That's the whole key to this thing. Well, how do you do that? You don't do that by raising subpar crops. You have to have fertilizer. Then the crop does really well. Then it pulls all those gases out of the air. So to say that fertilizer is bad for the environment, that's complete nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's one of the dumber things I've ever heard in my life. Fertilizer is fantastic for the environment when it's used properly. And that's what we're talking about with phosphorus. Okay, in terms of other environmental things, I would just ask you this. If I've got a well-fertilized crop, will it have more roots, yes or no? Well, of course it will. You know, everybody knows it will. All right, well, when there are more roots there, what does that do for any environmental potential problems that there are? Okay, nitrate, it's going to be pulled up by those roots. Any fertilizer going to be pulled up by those roots. Chemical, you name it. Also, your soil is much more stable when you have more root mass in it. So you're going to have less erosion. So I can give you lists on and on and on. Fertilizer is a good thing like phosphorus. Phosphorus is one of the primary nutrients along with nitrogen and potassium. You just need to use it in the right way. It will be amazing for you. It'll be amazing for your crop. It'll be amazing for your downstream environment, okay? Your environment that you have in your field. It's good all the way around if you just use it properly. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So again, our show is all about phosphorus today. If you've got any questions for us, 844-44-AG-PHD. Stay tuned. We're going to get to the phone lines right after this. When it comes to commanding herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Panther SC, an animal when it comes to speed of control and long residual on a broad spectrum of tough broadleaf weeds like mare's tail, palmer amaranth, and water hemp. And did we mention convenience? Panther SC works in pre-plant, pre-emerge, and post-harvest systems and keeps your rotation options open. New Farm and Panther SC, here to help.
you can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking about phosphorus, and this is always an interesting discussion. I think you know we talked nitrogen last week, and and people were super excited to talk nitrogen, and everybody gets fired up about nitrogen. Man, we got to have nitrogen, and I agree. We don't want to run short in nitrogen in our crop, but man, phosphorus is a huge topic. So. Happy to take your calls throughout the day. If you've got ideas or you want to join the discussion, 844-44-AG-PHD. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. Let's head over to Minnesota. We've got Justin with us right now. Justin, how are you doing? I'm great, Darren. Thanks. All right. So in the land of 10,000 lakes, phosphorus has got to be a big deal. Brian kind of opened up our discussion saying, man, we sure don't want to lose phosphorus because that can create algae in, in the fresh water. And I know in Minnesota, that's a big topic. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, phosphorus is a obviously a big part of most of the crops here in Minnesota, especially in corn and soybeans. And, and obviously, you know, sticking to, you know, proper uh, application and, and um, obviously making sure that our crop has a has enough here in Minnesota is, is very important. Yeah. So I, I know as you travel across the state of Minnesota, there's everything from no-till to deep tillage every year to strip till and everything in between. So what kind of practices are growers seeing a benefit from incorporating into their phosphorus applications? Yeah, I think the big thing, and in, in particularly on, on some of the farms my dad and I have, switching to uh, strip tillage has allowed us to kind of find that happy medium. Obviously, you know, phosphorus isn't going to move on us an immobile nutrient unless it goes with, with the soil, obviously, from a, from an erosion standpoint. Um, we've really found that, uh, you know, strip till has been a kind of a happy medium, um, a way to keep that uh, phosphorus incorporated into the soil where our plants can utilize it, but then also leaving enough undisturbed soil that uh, we can kind of minimize our, um, uh, you know, mobility, I guess, with, with soil, um, obviously getting into those lakes and streams that that's where we obviously don't want it. So, um, you know, I, it seems like uh, that's kind of been the biggest thing is, is making sure we're getting that 
Phosphorus Incorporated, and and obviously then making sure it, uh, you know, isn't moving from there. Now, you mentioned the strip till and using phosphorus, and we talk about this all the time on our farm and rates that we're using those types of things. Are you cutting back the rate when you're putting it in the band, or what are you doing on your farm? So we're looking, you know, typically from a, you know, from a broadcast uh, application, we're going to about 70%, which I, I find is a, is a really nice number. Um, you know, as we looked at our soil tests and obviously our yields over the, the past few years after kind of going to this uh, 70% program, we've been able to still see our, still see our uh, phosphorus levels rise, but then also still taking off a good crop. And, and again, just back to that efficiency of having all that phosphorus right in that root zone. Um, I think is is really important and really key. Uh, obviously, them roots don't have to uh, try um, as hard to uh, to look for phosphorus that might be outside that root zone. So, really finding a, a lot of efficiency in in having the correct amount of phosphorus right in that root zone. Now, when you're looking at different crops, do you do you mix things up on your fertility? Or are you putting stuff out for for each each year for each crop when you're doing it in strip till? Yeah, so we've we've gone to uh, uh, fertilize every year for every crop, um, you know, whether that's going to be a corn or soybeans, or even we do uh, um, have both corn and uh, or sweet corn and, and peas for uh, the canning company. And so obviously we look at our phosphorus needs for each crop um, and then are applying them accordingly. Uh, just it, as our crops and, and our uh, yields continue to go up, I, obviously I think it's important to fertilize for each crop and obviously for those those yield levels and getting back to, you know, obviously being good stewards of, of the soil and, uh, and our environment, obviously, you know, making sure we're not over applying phosphorus in areas where, where we have uh, plenty available. Um, you know, I still think it's um, humorous on a few farms as you look, uh, you know, there might've been an abandoned building site there uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and you're still seeing um, high phosphorus levels where manure application was probably historically done close to a building site. And so um, obviously taking in that into account and, um, you know, um, utilizing ferroborate application to uh, kind of maximize our phosphorus investment. Yeah, that's what it's all about, getting the best return on investment you can and doing the right thing for the environment. We're talking about phosphorus today. Real happy to hear from Justin here from Minnesota. Justin, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the info today. Absolutely, Darren. Great to be here. Let's head over to Michigan. Got Tim Dukert with us right now with AgriLiquid. All right, Tim, I bet a lot of that rings true for you. Uh, Justin seemed to be right on the, the right track here. Feed each crop, keep those nutrients close where the crop can utilize it. Seems like a good strategy. Yes, yes. Good afternoon. Um, exactly. He was uh, right on track there, and um, I certainly do do appreciate the strip till aspect of things. Um, great way to place nutrients and um, get it right in that root zone area. And um, and phosphorus is just a great topic. Um, you know, phosphorus helps those roots to grow and explore uh, other areas to pick up other nutrients. Um, it's certainly one of those major nutrients that we really need to focus on. And have a focus on every crop too, just like he was saying that uh, you know don't forget phosphorus when you're planting soybeans. Um, you know we think of potassium a lot just for soybeans, but phosphorus is just as important. It helps that root system to develop and helps to I think sometimes get you through some of those drought periods too. Yeah, absolutely. Having that right balance of nutrition where the roots can get it is is really critical. The other thing that I like about the strip till is just from a standpoint of tie-up. We see a lot of times we put on fertilizer and we aren't able to utilize it. What do you see with that, with phosphorus tie-up? What are some things growers should know about that to avoid it this year on their farms? 
Um, certainly, if you're in the higher pH soils, um, that tie-up is going to be uh, more prevalent. Um, so always being mindful of that. And, um, you know, we always like to stress that ProGerminator has that protection to to stay out there and um, become a season-long phosphorus availability because it, it's a slow release, a slow release from that um, that protection that it has uh, built into that product and, and keep feeding that plant as it goes throughout the season. But um, even in the, you know, a pH neutral or slightly below, um, that's still important to keep feeding that crop all the time. Uh, pH, or phosphorus is uh, in a constant state of flux in the soil. It's always coming into solution and out of solution. Um, but it's the other uh, cations there that can tie it up. And, and we want to make sure that it's protected and not being tied up at the time the plant actually does need it. The other thing with phosphorus is just how it's interrelated with some other nutrients. I know we get a lot of questions around zinc and copper and other nutrients of, hey, if I'm putting on phosphorus, do I need to necessarily keep up with my micros or are there some keys there that should trigger a micronutrient application as well? I know you get those questions, Tim, and, and you hear a lot of guys making blends of fertilizer trying to, to get kind of a complete balance for the crop. What are your feelings with the micronutrients when it comes to putting them on with phosphorus or in consideration of a of a phosphorus application i i love all the thinking about nutrient interactions it's something that uh probably the least understood thing about the soil um biology that's happening when we look at stuff but um the micronutrients and phosphorus yes are important um when we're making those phosphorus applications uh, make sure that we're um, keeping up on on those micronutrients as well copper iron um, zinc is, is uh, ones that really react with uh, phosphorus. You know, if we get our phosphorus levels too high and we don't have, we can really tie those, uh, those three special micronutrients up and we need to make sure that uh, we're putting enough out that that doesn't happen and uh, that we can also supply uh, the crop what it needs with, with those micronutrients because we are putting more phosphorus on and, and helping that root system to develop and explore the soil and and helping that plant grow better. Yeah, certainly a lot that goes into getting this nutrient piece right. I love the focus on that root system and and trying to put nutrients where we need to to, to make sure we get good uptake. We're talking with Tim Dukert with AgriLiquid. Tim, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Thank you. Have a great day. You as well. Talking phosphorus on our show today, also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And I, I like that we focused on multiple crops here because this isn't just, well, we need phosphorus for this one particular crop. Nope. We need it for all of them. And it is a, another part of the conversation too, in terms of the strip till. All right. You put phosphorus in that strip. What if you put a little bit more out there? What if you put a build rate out in a strip? How do you manage from there? Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. We do we do some strip till on our farm, and certainly we've got some fields that we've been trying to build things up on as well. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. 
Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. It's about time. Time for unprecedented season-long foliar disease protection. Formulated for a convenient at-plant application, new first-of-their-kind Inferro Zyway brand fungicides deliver complete inside-out protection from day one. From root to tassel, stalk to leaf. From planting through harvest. The active ingredient, Flutriophol, moves from the soil through your plants as your corn grows. Change the way you approach foliar disease protection from the start with first-of-their-kind Inferro Zyway 3D and Zyway LFR fungicides, available only from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides qualify for the exclusive agronomic and economic incentives of the FMC Freedom Pass program. Visit your FMC retailer or zyway.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with a Bayer Plus Rewards program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards, and that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. See program terms and conditions for full details. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, talking phosphorus today and taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's head out to Indiana. Got Greg Knebuler on with us right now. Greg, did I get your name right, first of all? Uh, close. It's a Knebuler, but oh. hey, I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was close. I was, okay. Uh, Greg's with the uh, G&K Concepts. Uh, thanks for joining us today to talk a little about phosphorus. When when you get these questions about phosphorus, how to get it out there and how it's really working for us out in the field, where do you start that conversation? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of it starts with what our situation is in terms of need and rates and uh, guidelines that we need to follow, more or less. Yeah, the guidelines are, are interesting, and, and this is one of the challenges that we see, and we get stuff sent to us all the time. People say, well, wait a second, right across the border, the recommendations are different than here. Should it really be that much different depending on where you're at? 
Well, that's a great point, and that's something that we deal with too, particularly for the fact we're close to the state line of Indiana and Ohio. So we actually have vastly different criteria that we need to follow um, that, you know, isn't necessarily wrong. It's just the rules that we have to adhere to in order for our growers to be able to make applications and make them at the right times and follow the, the right guidelines that they have to follow. And it's, I mean, it can be challenging at points, but we find ways to make it fit. Yeah, it's it's interesting too. Every, every farm you go to, they're set up a little bit different. Some guys are set up for, man, if I can put things out in the fall, I've got time to do it. I'm going to do some tillage anyway of one shape or sort, whether it's conventional or strip till. Other guys, man, I don't have any time at all in the fall. I got to do things in the spring or even in crop. That That adds a little bit of a challenge to it as well. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, the fact that we live in the western Lake Erie Basin and our watershed flows to um, Toledo and Lake Erie, that's a that's a hot bed for the country in terms of phosphorus and, and eutrophication. And so we're very cognizant of applications that we make and rates that we apply and times of year. And so whether that's a starter situation or broadcast, and, and even manures, we're in an area that we deal with a lot of manure applications. And so we kind of have to juggle all those balls at once to make them work. But uh, we can do it. We can do it. But we have to be very, very careful of managing that because we're trying to protect the water and be environmentally sensitive all at the same time. Yeah, you brought up the manure piece, and that that is one that – in some cases takes a little bit of the flexibility out of it for growers in that, man, my pit is full by fall. I've got to get some out there and the weather doesn't always cooperate. I know, gosh, just right where you're at on that Indiana, Ohio state state line. You guys have had some tough years in the last few years where, where it's, it's either been really good or it's been really bad in terms of fall conditions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, it's, it's tough. And so if you're a buyer of manure, um, it's a little less challenging if you're a creator of the manure and you have to deal with a full manure situation and move it. It can be tough. And some guys have implemented cover crops because by the regulatory standpoint, cover crops give a uh, wider flexibility calendar, calendar to be able to apply manures. And so that's helped. Um, you know, we can make arguments for or against how it's affected crop production, but the bottom line is, it's allowed us to get nutrients out in a wider window and give us more freedom, I guess, to, to make those applications. Yeah, you're right. There are, there are definitely a lot of benefits when it comes to cover crops and certainly holding holding nutrients and holding soil in place are a couple of the big ones. Talking to Greg Knibular with us out in Indiana. Greg, thank you so much. Really appreciate your ideas here and your thoughts, and good luck to you here heading into the spring. All right, you bet. Thanks for your time. So, Darren, one of the last things I guess that I wanted to talk about today is with phosphorus, this is where banding can really pay, at least in the short term. So we ran a long-term study on our farm for like 11 years where we took about 500 acres and did banded and 500 acres where we did broadcast. Well, with the broadcast, we literally ran 50% more phosphorus than where we had put 
the banded fertilizer. So how we did it on the band is we looked at what's the crop going to remove for grain and made sure we had at least that much out there. And then we put on 50% more than that in the band. Or sorry, in the broadcast, I mean. And we continue to do that to this day because over those 11 years, uh, we found that Okay, you're gonna you're gonna do two different things here. Where you're putting on the lower rate of fertilizer and you've banded it. Now you've got it down in the soil. We either did this by strip till or with the planter, and either way, we found that we were able to get similar yields to where we put on a lot more phosphorus in the broadcast. But here's the thing: over those 11 years, yeah, we really weren't gaining yield, but our soil test levels were going up, and eventually now. We are able to get some higher yields. So if you want higher yields on ground you own, like 15 and 20 years from now. So in other words, if you're building stuff up for your kids, broadcast fertilizer, it's a fantastic way to go. If you say, look, I got, I got to make it through this year or the next three years, and I want as much and as good of efficiency as possible out of my phosphorus, then you need to band it absolutely. If money's tight, band it. Okay, so if you don't know if you're going to have the ground again, band it. So in my opinion, almost all rented ground should be banded phosphorus because now we have a much, much, much better chance to extract that fertilizer this year as opposed to at some point down the road. Somebody else is going to get the benefit of your phosphorus if you go broadcast that. I'm, I'm just telling you, uh, universities are going to tell you the same thing. Soils Labs will tell you the same thing. We proved it out on our farm as well. We've had people we've been working with for years. This is what we found. So banding makes a lot of sense for immobile soil nutrients like phosphorus, zinc, potassium to some degree, copper. I, I'm, I'm just saying, uh, when you get mobile soil nutrients like nitrate, sulfate, boron, that's a little different deal. That I'm not so worried about. If you want to go broadcast that, we don't see a lot of gain in the band. We'll see a little bit, but not a lot. But boy, phosphorus, it just, it's the most immobile of nutrients. So that's why it's so dramatically different when you talk about managing phosphorus versus managing nitrogen. Uh, Beyond that, I, I think Darren and I probably get the question most about, well, what should my levels be on phosphorus? Look at my soil test. What do you think? And all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I'll, I'll say this. It's a little confusing with phosphorus because you've got you to do a little multiplication. Let me just give you an example. Let's say on your soil test it tells you you've got 10 parts per million of phosphorus. Okay, 10 parts per million of phosphorus. Well, first of all, you have to convert that over to pounds. If it's a six-inch soil test, you multiply times two. So 10 times two is 20 pounds. Well, then you got to convert it over to phosphate. And you say, well, wait a second. I thought we're, we already have phosphorus. Yes, phosphorus and phosphate are not the same thing. For example, when you buy MAP or DAP, instead of getting 11520 or 18460 and thinking, oh, that's, that's phosphorus. That's pounds of phosphorus. No, it's not. That's pounds of phosphate. That's phosphate. We want to convert everything over to phosphate, so we're all talking the same language. We're all on the same page here. And if you look at nutrient removal apps like ours, uh, it's going to tell you how many pounds of phosphate does the crop need. So anyway, you got to multiply times 2.3. So in my example, I had 20 parts per million. Times 2 is 20 pounds. Times 2.3 is 46 pounds of phosphate. Now I'll say this. If I owned a soil lab, 
Everything would be in phosphate and everything would be in pounds. So you don't have to run these conversions. But anyway, my point is a lot of times we'll see soil tests come to us and it'll say 20 or 30 parts per million and they go high for a soil level. I'm going, what are you talking about? That is not high. In my book, that's ridiculously low. So I want to see that level up, and it all depends. And obviously, you got to do the right thing if, if you have legal requirements and environmental issues and things like that. But usually, I'm shooting for close to 100 parts per million of phosphorus, and then I, then I feel pretty good. Because keep in mind, that's a broadcast. A lot of that's not going to get recovered this year by your plant because you didn't band it. Well, we'll talk a little more about phosphorus and then get to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag coming up next. AgroLiquid is precision crop nutrition. That means being committed to product performance, to research and field testing, and to superior agronomics. Most of all, AgroLiquid is committed to delivering precisely the right nutrition in the right way, including seed-safe planter plus side dress applications and foliar applications with low burn risk. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. You're looking for soybeans that give you the yield you want. But when it comes to fighting your toughest weeds, you also need flexibility. Introducing Extend Flex Soybeans. Elite genetics with triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate. The yield you want, the choice you need. Learn more at extendflexsoy.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. And dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. 
Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We are live in the Morton studio today talking phosphorus. So right before the break, I was just talking about, hey, to convert things over, you got to make sure you're taking a look at actual phosphate. So you got to convert it to pounds, then you convert it over to phosphate, and the number is 2.3 times your phosphorus. So if you had 20 pounds of phosphorus, that would be 46 pounds of phosphate. And the reason why it's important to know phosphate is because when you look at how much the crop's going to remove, any agronomist, like Darren or me, we're going to tell you in pounds of phosphate. So it's kind of nice to be speaking the same language, right? (laughs) Anyway, uh, beyond that, in terms of phosphorus and what we need to talk about, I'd just say get your soil tested. That's really, really important. And take a look at banding versus broadcast. Again, I don't have a big issue if you own the ground and you're looking at long-term. Broadcast makes a lot of sense with phosphorus, but otherwise banding is is really, in our opinion, the way to go to get the best efficiency out of that fertilizer. Darren, any other comments on phosphorus? Anything else you wanted to talk about there? No, I think we might get into it a little bit more with some of these questions that are coming in for the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, Brian, uh, first one comes in about corn fungicides here, and this one is from Clint. And he said, I'm in western Kentucky, and we seem to get southern rust just about every year anymore. Two years ago, I tried Triva Pro on our corn when it was six or seven feet tall, hoping it would prevent any disease since I'd heard it was systemic and would last so long. Well, that's about the tallest corn I can get over with our sprayer as well. Just about everyone that sprays fungicide here waits until brown silk has it flown on. I figured I'd do a better job using more gallons of water that I could do with my ground rig. Now, the yield data I pulled out of the combine proved to me that it worked, and last year I sprayed all my corn and can visually see it in the end rows where I sweep the ends. Wondering, would there be a better way to do this or a better fungicide to use? Also, I hear about Zyway and just wondering what I should do about that. I hear the full rate's 15.2 ounces. Someone told me I should do a half a rate. Well, Clint, first of all, Zyway is not going to be labeled for southern rust, and I'm not expecting it to be a great southern rust product, but it is pretty good on a number of other diseases, so I don't see any issue incorporating Zyway into your fungicide program to get some additional help. And if you can keep that plant healthier, it should be able to tolerate whatever disease comes on later in the season a little better. Well, yes, but if you say, hey, my number one issue is southern rust, my number two issue is southern rust, and my number three issue is southern rust, then save your money. Don't put the Zyway down. Instead, go with something and maybe even two shots post, one shot that would be yours, and then you have, in other words, you spraying it when that corn's six or seven feet tall, and then come back with something else later. Um, what's better than Triva-Pro? Look, I, 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 don't, I don't have that big of an issue with Triva-Pro or Mervis Neal. It's just... They have old tilt in them. And so that, to me, gets a little frustrating. If it was me, I would probably try the new Delaro Complete, for example, that'll give you the same modes of action, just with a much newer Trizol. There are other options out there for you, whether it's you want to try Valtima or, I mean, even though they don't market it for corn, Revitec. Uh, both of those are from BSF. So I'd at least be trying other things. That's always what we encourage people to do. Hey, stick with what has been working for you, but try the new things because typically the new things come out because they're better. All right. Thanks for the question. 
Get this one from Josh, who is in southern Illinois and uh, across into western Kentucky. He said, hey, guys, I'm trying to decide where my dollar would be best spent on the farm. And I've got Malik 3 soil tests that my local dealership runs. We've got lighter soils, generally anywhere from an 8 on the low end of CECs up to some in the 25 range. And we tend to have lower pH. Just wondering what your nutrient levels you'd shoot for on a Malik 3 soil test would be going for 300 bushel corn and 100 bushel soybeans. Well, I guess if we're talking everything, what are we looking for? Then we usually are going to start with pH and we're going to say, hey, we want to at least be into the low sixes. So, uh, the ideal pH for corn, soybeans, and wheat is 6.3 to 6.8. Beyond that, um, you're going to manage that 8 CEC soil a little different than the 25. And, and here's what I mean by that. So if I think about potassium, I think about sulfur and nitrogen, I can't just say, oh, I got to hit this certain soil level because those nutrients aren't going to get held very well, even boron. Where you're at, where you're going to get at least twice as much rainfall as us, you got a lot, that's pretty light soil at an 8 CEC. That's a real challenge. So with those, all those leachable nutrients, you're going to need to spoon feed those to some degree. When we talk about the immobile nutrients, uh, phosphorus, a lot of times I'm looking for on a Malik 3, at least 100 parts per million for 300 bushel corn. And I, again, I say at least, uh, yeah. So Darren, here, Darren is just handing me, well, what does 300 bushel corn take? And I, I get that. And that's something you can look at. Just well, pull that light soil, that'd be the thing I'd be really lab. looking at. You know what well, I mean? If you well, if you said not, if I can't well, hold much of certain things, like for example, yeah. sulfur and nitrogen and boron are really good examples. Yeah, how much but, do you have to get out there yeah. in total? Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, absolutely. Look at the Ag PhD fertilizer removal app. But I don't think that was really his question. I, 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 he probably knows what you need, or if you don't, just look it up. But his question was, what should my soil levels be? And what I'm trying to say here is, I would shoot for at least a hundred parts per million on on phosphorus phosphorus and parts per million. If you're at that, then we know you can get 300 bushel corn because we've had plenty of farmers who have done it and shown that and we have ourselves. So you can absolutely do that. On potassium, what you're probably going to be looking for in your, you've got to have both parts per million and base saturation K. So really what we want is probably at least five or 6% base saturation K and making sure we have at least probably 400 parts per million on K. So if you're missing one or the other, you got to get it up. And my guess is on that 8 CEC, that's where you're not going to have anywhere close to that. You're probably down in the 100, 150 parts per million right now. And what I'm saying is since potassium in your area on the 8 CEC and all your rainfall is a little bit leachable, that's where you're probably going to have to at least build that up some with some in-season application. Uh, beyond that, you know, zinc, we're usually talking 10 to 1 with phosphorus. So, you know, at least be getting that up above five parts per million. I'd prefer it getting closer to 10. Boron, we like to see a couple parts per million, but it's hard to hold it in your soil. Copper, we like at least two or three parts per million. Iron, you know, it, it's got to be way up there. I mean, you're probably talking 50 or 100 parts per million. And manganese, we're usually looking for at least 20 to 40 parts per million. So as a general, very general statement, that's kind of what we're looking for. But if you want specifics, send us your soil test and we can go from there. 
All right, thanks for the question. Uh, okay, right, got a sulfur question here. This is from Joel. He said, you guys were talking about lowering soil pH. I'm wondering how much sulfur does it take to drop the pH as fast as you talk about in some of your examples? Yep, uh, we can't give you that exact exact answer. There are plenty of charts out there. I know Clemson's got one, Ohio State's got one. We find that all the university charts are wrong, in part because they don't figure cation exchange capacity right down to it. In other words, I want to know for a 17 cation exchange capacity, what does it take? And based on heat, rainfall, everything else, there are too many factors is what I'm saying, number one. Number two, you have to have great drainage. In other words, you have to have lots of air in the soil. And the reason you have to have lots of air in the soil is there are certain microbes that will break this sulfur down and convert it over to sulfate. So we don't know what level of those microbes you have, number one. We don't know the survivability, number two. And number three, the hotter it is, the faster the conversion goes. And then the other factor is the sulfur that you buy. What you're looking for is a fine material. You want super fine stuff. And what I often tell people is just get three diff different sources. Okay. And by the way, when you call up your fertilizer dealer, they're going to have no clue what you're talking about. None of them have that I've ever talked to. You're going to say, yeah, I want the best grade of sulfur that's going to break down quickest. And they're going to go, yeah, I don't know. This is just the stuff we sell. So what I'm saying is try to find three different sources, get samples of each of those three, put them in little jars with some water, shake them up, then come back the next day, shake them up, the next day, shake them up, and pretty soon you're going to sort out the ones that will dissolve versus the ones that don't. So those are all the factors that we talk about. As a general statement, I'd say start with 100, 200 pounds, something like that, and see if your pH goes down and go from there. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Pentair Hypro Ultra Low Drift Nozzles are your ideal choice for the Enlist E3 herbicide system. With coverage comparable to flat fans and with 90% less drift, ULD nozzles meet all required standards for Enlist applications and provide optimal performance of contact herbicides. Learn more at pentair.com slash hypro. Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels in variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases a seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with High Striker-treated nitrogen. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. 
Beat resistant weeds with Tough IVC on your team. Add Tough IVC into your post-emergent tank mix and even the playing field. Tough IVC, a selective contact herbicide, synergizes HPBD inhibitors and enhances the effect of PS2 herbicides. Tough IVC increases control of some of the toughest to kill herbicide resistant weeds, such as Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. Ask your local retailer about Tough IVC or visit BelchamUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farm your way. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time, we're taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We got uh, some soil tests in. And Brian, we started off this whole journey of Ag PhD over 20 years ago, and we were the weed of the week guys. And I think people turned to us primarily for how do we kill these weeds? Because there are some tough weed species. Well, in the meantime, we got Roundup Ready crops, Liberty Link crops, Dicamba tolerant crops, 2,4-D tolerant crops. We got some great weed control options out there. Not that, not that occasionally we don't need some help with certain weeds, but it seems like we're becoming the soil test show because we get so many soil tests sent to us every day. It's it's really pretty amazing, and people want help with their soil fertility. I agree with that, but I, I often have to remind people, let's not forget about the basics, and that is you've got to have great weed control if you want great yields. But anyway, go ahead. All right, so this comes from Al up in North Dakota who's got some rolling hills and he said variable soil, and this is his first time that he soil sampled in one-acre grids just to see what's going on. So they had a few different fields. One they did in 10-acre grids. One they did seven-acre zones, and the other one they did one-acre grids. And what they saw really shocked him. So he said the hills are eroded, and now yep. I'm farming subsoil. Yep. So it's the highest CEC, highest pH areas. My valleys, I'm getting 180 bushel corn. My hills... 50 to 70 bushel corn. Help me out. What can I do to raise better crops on those hills? Okay. So we went through a lot of that same stuff. We have rolling hills that we farm. Now we also farm some flatland, but on our rolling hills, yeah, we started seeing that where, hey, the hilltops are pretty eroded. So what you have to think about is how do we build new topsoil? Well, how you do that is you plant crops with lots of roots. So like for us, that means more corn than beans on those areas. We reduce our tillage. We went no-till for a while, but now we've switched the no-till acres to strip-till. So that's number two. And then the third thing is, if you can, try to get some manure or compost into the whole equation. Now in the north here, we can't raise cover crops because basically corn and soybeans are our cover crops. We plant um, as the thaw is coming out. And, or as the, as the ground is thawing, I should say, and we harvest when the ground is freezing. So there's no time to raise a cover crop. But if you had the time, let's say you're raising a short season crop, put a cover crop in or raise a second crop, keep something growing out there. That's the other, other big suggestion we have in terms of building new topsoil. 
I, I guess what I would tell you is, yes, your pH is really high. You've got a lot that's eight. Now, what that represents is there's an imbalance in nutrients. And here's your imbalance in a lot of cases. The potassium is really low. You're down even below 2% base saturation K. Your phosphorus is really low. You're down in the single digits in a lot of areas for phosphorus. So that's got to get raised. Your sulfur is single digits. That needs to be probably 50 parts per million. So you're really, really low. Um, your zinc is 0.2. And I'd like to see that number at 5 or 10. Uh, your manganese is really low. Your iron's really low. Your copper's really low. And your boron's really low. So the point is you need all fertility, literally everything, and get a crop growing out there. And then it's going to continue to get better for you. Try to reduce your tillage on those hilltops. But yes, this can absolutely improve. We, we've been able to do the same kind of thing. Now, it doesn't happen overnight, but you work on it for 10 years and you come back 10 years later, you're going to have built new topsoil. You're going to have much higher yields. Things are going to be a lot more productive and a lot more fun. And I don't know about the next generation, how old you are, anything else, but every farmer, it seems like, talks about, hey, I want to leave my ground in better condition for the next generation. You can absolutely do that. You just have to make a diligent effort here because your soil is lacking in a lot of stuff. Thanks for the questions, Al. I uh, got this one from Vlad, uh, right along the lines of our phosphorus topic today. So when I apply large amounts of composted manure in the fall, like 25 tons per acre, is there available phosphorus in early spring, or do I have to wait until 60 to 65 degree temperatures for microbials to really start working on phosphorus availability? Yeah, when it's compost, there's going to be some that's going to be available right away, but it's certainly not all going to be available. And the other thing that we didn't talk about in our phosphorus topic today is, let's not forget, there is some phosphorus that comes available through organic matter mineralization each and every year. It's roughly in the range of 4 to 7 pounds for each 1% of organic matter that comes available for phosphate. Okay, so... We might have, you know, let's say you had 4% organic matter soil. You're talking 16 to 28 pounds of phosphate. Well, that helps. That that allows you to cut your cut your fertilizer bill down a little bit. And even like the last uh, last soil test question that we got, you know, when when I say you're low on everything, some people hear that as, oh, they just want me to spend a whole bunch of money on fertilizer. Well, I want you to spend some, and that's the reason why we do soil tests so we can try to figure out, well, where is the money best spent? That's really what it comes back to. So you got to take a look at all that stuff. So anyway, I know I'm getting off on a tangent. What was his original question there, Darren? What was he What was he after? He's just wondering if there's going to be phosphorus availability early yeah. or does he have to wait till it warms up? And, and along those lines then, should he be applying a pop-up yes. just to provide phosphorus early yes. until that compost becomes available? Yes, pop-up or even some two-by-two. And here's the thing. I don't see the soil test, so I don't know. Are you currently at 100 parts per million on phosphorus or are you at 10? If you're at 10 and you're really low, then I'd put a little in pop-up and I'd probably do some two-by-two also. I do everything I can to make sure that my crop never runs short because that compost phosphorus, it's going to come available slowly. And that's part of the reason why a lot of people like manure rather than compost because some of the nutrients are available quicker. But you know, compost is obviously safer environmentally, and compost is going to help build your soil. There are lots of good things with compost. doesn't smell, all that. Anyway, go ahead. 
All right. Uh, get a question. This is from Anderson who said, I see a lot of advertisements for microbial products out there, and I'm from South Central Alabama. We're 100% strip till. We have been putting anhydrous down at 10 inches deep, and we're putting our liquid down at about 4 or 5 inches deep. I got a couple of questions. First, am I allowed to mix biological products like, for example, MycoApply Endoprime with liquid fertilizer, which usually is 32% nitrogen, four to five inches deep? And then number two, I've heard anhydrous is deadly to organisms. Yep. I'm wondering, will that kill the biologicals being placed above the anhydrous? Both products are being applied directly behind the shank of our ripper. Okay, so if that anhydrous can get up to that four or five inch depth, then yes, it could kill the microbes. So that's the whole thing. I don't know if that's getting sealed up by then or not, but when it's both being done in the same application, I would lean toward that's probably going to be harmful for the, the microbes. The other thing is when you're putting this out there, is that the right time to do a lot of the biologicals? No, it's not. Usually what we encourage people to do is put it right on as a seed treatment, put it in furrow. Uh, You want it really near to the seed, not several inches deeper. So is that the way I would put any microbe on? Probably not. Darren, I can't think of a microbe that I would want to put four or five inches deep as opposed to right in furrow. No, your best, there's more oxygen up a little bit higher and yes. plus you want to have it as close to that root in most cases unless and, you're just putting something out there to try and help decompose residue a little faster that type of thing yeah now many of the microbes aren't going to be hurt by fertilizer but especially when you've got the anhydrous that could potentially gas up and and then hurt stuff we know the anhydrous can do some harm i i just don't think i'd go that way that that that's not how i would do it i would suggest you get this application done get all your fertilizer out there then handle your microbes with a planter somehow some way all right thanks for the question got this from bernard and he said i i've been watching your show you've been talking about weed of the week creeping charlie from time to time and a turf specialist told me the best time to spray creeping charlie was when it was blooming he mentioned something about the leaves being more vulnerable to absorbing herbicide when the plant was blooming so i tried this and i had a spot where i'd been spraying two or three times a year and not really doing much in fact it was actually getting a little worse Well, the next year I waited until I saw the blossoms I sprayed, and it actually seemed to disappear somewhat. And the next year only covered one-third of the area. I did the same thing again the next year, spraying when the Creeping Charlie was blooming, and now it's completely gone. Just wanted to share that piece of advice that worked well for me in my lawn. Thanks, Bernard. Really appreciate that. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. Nope, I hadn't either. I mean, I will say we've had some success spraying before bloom, but we're also running some big rates. A lot of times I'll tell people, hey, if I haven't turned the grass a little bit brown, I probably didn't go strong enough with my rate. Now, make sure we always stay on label. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But rate to me is really important for those super tough weeds like Creeping Charlie. Right, had a fun show today. Got to a lot of mailbag questions, and we're really excited for the Neil Kinsey workshop coming up starting tomorrow. If you would still like to be part of that, there is room both in person and online. You can find more details at agphd.com. Thanks for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.